We're continuing in our series. This is going to be a six-month-long series uh, that we've titled Christ is King, and you have undoubtedly seen the slide behind me. We're in our third week, and the previous two weeks, the, the opening week was the introduction of Ben preached in Colossians, and we saw the lordship of Jesus and his preeminence over all things, his preeminence over the cosmos, over all of creation and his preeminence within the church and how it's the church that puts on display Christ and his authority. And last week, we looked specifically at Christ being king over our members. And by members, we mean the things that make us us, who we are, our, not just bodily parts, but things like our mind and our heart and our our feet, what we put our hands to, all those things. Christ is Lord over all of that. And today, we'll be diving into a parable in Luke chapter 12 that Jesus teaches. And this particular sermon is, it regards Christ being king over our moments. Christ as king over our moments. We'll be reading from Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 48. And the subtitle to this sermon is Living at the Ready. Living at the Ready. Because we could say Christ is king over time and over our time, but there would be a tendency to consider that in the abstract and to not really bring it to earth and deal with what it means for Christ to be king over our time over our moments because our moments are filled with what we do or rather or also what we don't do and so we're looking specifically at what what does it look like for us to be disciples who are making the most of the time making the most of the days and so if you would please join me in the book of Luke Chapter 12, starting in verse 35. Jesus has been teaching parables, and so we're picking up halfway through um, a series of parables. His last known location is Bethany. Uh, the text doesn't specifically say that, but we know he visited Mary and Martha, the sisters to Lazarus. And we know from John's account that they lived in the village of Bethany. Uh, he may have moved on. It says that he stopped at a place to pray. It could still be, be within the village. We don't know. But what we do know is he is teaching parables, and the crowds have drawn near. The crowds have drawn near. And in the midst of this teaching, he says this, verse 35, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. 
Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us? That is the disciples, the immediate 12. Or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Let's pray. Jesus, you are truly the Christ. And your words have truly come from heaven above. They are truth and the source of all truth for us, your people who call out by your name. I pray today that you would reveal to us more of yourself, that your word would go forth powerfully, that it would resound with authority, that it would take hold and conquer our, our hearts, our minds, that it would conquer our fears and our unbelief, and that it would conquer the lies of the world and of the enemy himself. I pray that your truth would bear fruit in our lives and that we would seek to conform ourselves to it. This is the real world. May we submit to you, for you are Lord. You are the Son of Man, to whom we will give an account. I pray that we rejoice in the grace that has been afforded to us, and we would take serious the warnings you give to those who follow you. It's in your name I pray and ask all this. Please be with us. Amen. So, some of your Bibles, they might have sub, subheadings. Those are added later. The original texts don't have those things. So, it may look like I, I just read from two different parables. I really believe that there's a parable inside the parable. But this is one whole dialogue happening between Jesus and the crowds with Peter interjecting and asking for specifics. He's asking Jesus to, to elaborate, and Jesus does it as much. But... It's important to understand, what does this have to do with Christ being king over our moments or over what we do with our time? And to that, I'd say everything. He's teaching on the kingdom of God and what it looks like to belong to the household of God. You see these characters in his parables often, servants and masters. The master always being God himself. 
and the servants being the disciples. Jesus refers to himself as the master of the disciples in, through, throughout the Gospels. And he says so immediately and so abruptly, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And so my first point is this, stay at the ready, stay at the ready. And so the question must be asked, why be ready? What reason does Jesus give for living at the ready, for staying at the ready? Well, the Son of Man is returning at an hour that no one expects. For those of you that don't know, the Son of Man is a figure from the Old Testament. We see Daniel write about him, and it's a figure that will bring the judgment of the Almighty on earth. And so the Jews listening to this parable understand quite well who the Son of Man is, or at least what it means that the Son of Man will return at an hour that no one expects. It means he's bringing judgment. Jesus is revealing in this that he is the Son of Man. And so the Son of Man is a title. It's a title given to the one who will judge both the living and the dead. He is a judge who will render unto each man according to his works. This return of the Son of Man will be the revealing of Jesus as the Christ to the whole world. But to those of us who belong to Christ in faith, we're already in on the secret. We already know him as the Christ, as the Messiah. We're already in on the cosmic secret that will be revealed on the last day when the whole world will finally, despite their rebellion and rejection, see him for who he is. And on that day, there will be no more long-suffering. There will be no more patience. We see in the New Testament that God is patient because he doesn't want anyone to perish, but that his patience is for all until that day, until that day. So we, can't, we should not consider his patience as forgetfulness or as a delay, but rather as grace upon grace to the world today. But on that day, and Jesus is warning that you don't know when that day will come. And on that day, he will render unto each man according to his works. And it is for this reason, for this reason, Jesus teaches that we should live at the ready. This isn't some alarmist teaching or some doom and gloom teaching, but it is meant to be a wake-up call to the disciples. Because every moment is one more moment to that day, one moment closer to that day. Thinking a little, we're going to get a little metaphysical here, but every breath you take, you're one breath closer to death. It's a fact. Every day you live, you're one day closer to death. But there will be a day when Christ will return, and some will not taste that first death. And so he says, live at the ready. If Jesus is the son of man, 
then he is the one who judges. And the one who judges must be Lord, or else he cannot be the judge. Do you see that? The one who judges must be Lord over all, or else he cannot be the judge. This is categorically different than our justice system. You know, we live in a, a government or in a society that has a, a, a form of government in which judges pass judgment on whether someone has broken the law. And the law is the set-apart standard. Supreme Court justices aim to uphold the standard within the Constitution, realizing that they themselves are not the standard, but their goal is to be as impartial as possible in passing judgment on a situation according to the agreed-upon standard, which in our case is the Constitution of the United States. But that's categorically different then God is judge according to the scriptures because he is not only the standard but he is the giver of the law based on the standard of his righteousness. So the standard is him. It's not some other agreed upon set of values. The law of God is rooted in the very character of God. And so for Jesus to be the judge, it means he is God. It means he's, he's Lord over all. And because the Son of Man, that is Jesus, will judge us according to everything we do, thoughts, words, deeds, then everything we do matters. Everything we do matters. And the things that we do or don't do are what make up our moments. And so for Christ to be king over our moments means he's king over everything. And so what is his warning to the, to the disciples? Stay dressed for action. Stay dressed for action. It's not your normal attire. It's a consecrated attire. We see replete within the New Testament these visuals of what it looks like to put on holy attire, to put on Christ. Briefly, I'll just make a, I've made a short list and there's more, there's more from this. Romans 13, 12, let us put on the armor of light. Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 3, 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. Ephesians 4, 24, put on the new self. Ephesians 6, 11, put on the whole armor of God. Ephesians 6, 14, put on the breastplate of righteousness. 6, 15, Put on the readiness given by the gospel of grace. Talking about footwear. Put the gospel of readiness on your feet. Colossians 3.10. Put on the new self. Colossians 3.12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Colossians 3.14. 
Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. This is the attire. This is the attire given to us in Christ. This is how we stay dressed. But not, you don't just put it on to then take it off again. You stay dressed for action. You stay dressed. This is, this is active, okay? It's not passive. We'll get into more of this later. But the Christian life is always active. If you are coasting, if you are in cruise control, you're actually going the wrong direction. You just don't know it. This is a really cheeky phrase, but uh, cliche, but only dead fish swim downriver, right? What happens when salmon and trout are looking to spawn and stuff? Boy, they're hopping against the flow, against the current. Only dead fish wash downriver. Christianity is not passive but active because it's rooted in the power of God in us because of Christ. And so we put on Christ and his righteousness and the fruit thereof, and we keep it on. We keep it on with diligence. What kind of soldier would take off his armor in the heat of battle. He'd be a fool. He'd be a fool. May we not be the same. You must be dressed for the occasion. But the good news is Jesus is our covering. Jesus is our covering. After dressing yourself for the occasion, or rather letting Jesus dress you for the occasion, and being diligent to stay dressed, you must shine. You must shine. Keep your lamps burning. Keep your lamps burning. There's another parable in which uh, these bridegrooms or bridesmaids are waiting for the groom to come in. And half of them were prepared. They didn't know how long he was going to take. Jesus tells this parable. You should be familiar with it. They didn't know how long he would take. And so they prepared extra oil. Extra oil. They were prepared, ready for action. The other half of the bridesmaids forgot their oil. And it burned out. And on their journey to go get more oil, they missed the return of the groom. They missed him entirely. And they were not let into the household. They were not let in. So, Jesus charges the disciples to keep your lamps burning. I have another list. Light is used often in the scriptures. The idea of light overcoming darkness and the idea that we belong to the light as children of God. In fact, in Revelation, the, church, the churches are symbolized as lampstands and the Lord walks in their midst. And so the church is the very light of Christ, not that they are the source of it, but that he gives it to them. And we burn brightly for his sake. 
Matthew 5.14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. 5.16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father. Luke 11.36, if then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright. John 3.21, whoever does what is true comes to the light, that it may be seen clearly. John 8.12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Romans 13.12, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Ephesians 5.8, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Philippians 2.15, be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. 1 Thessalonians 5, 5, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of the darkness. 1 John 1, 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If you belong to God in Christ, you are the light of the world. But the warning, a warning from the Lord himself, keep your lamps burning. Keep your lamps burning. You will not do well if you burn all of your oil too quickly. You are finite, but he is infinite. You are finite, but he is infinite. The Christian life also is best characterized as a marathon rather than a sprint. This imagery, again, is, filled in, is, is in the scriptures. Should you exert yourself too much and in your own strength and seek to live off feelings, adrenaline, you will burn out. You won't cross the finish line. But should you pace yourself and consume a steady diet of the scriptures and of prayer and of fellowship with the saints. And you mark out daily your obedience to the Lord. You will cross that finish line. Your lamp will not burn out. You need faithful endurance. You must entrust yourself to Christ for fruitful living. Second point is this, work faithfully. Jesus continues in the parable. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. This is amazing, by the way. I'm not going to spend too much time here, but this is amazing. Jesus is saying the master of the house, when he returns... And he finds faithful servants awake and ready for his arrival. He will serve them. He doesn't have to. 
He doesn't have to. In fact, he's not obligated to in no way, shape, or form. And, and yet, in mercy, the master rewards his faithful servants. And he says, sit down. I, I will tend to you. I will serve you. And here's the parable inside the parable, verse 39. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And so we know now to be ready, to stay at the ready. And the warning is there. But what is it we should be doing? What, what should be consuming our waiting What deeds should we be giving our hands to? This is where we find we ought to work faithfully. Peter interjects. And if if you've read much from the Gospels, you know Peter likes to... um, He's somewhat of a nuisance at times. He's, He's enthusiastic, I should say. Okay? Very enthusiastic. He earnestly desires to follow... Christ but his enthusiasm gets him in trouble at times because he also seeks to approve himself before his fellow disciples and he's also a bit brazen and speaks too quickly he swore to the Lord that he would never deny him and then he denied him and so this is very typical of Peter he says this, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? He wants clarity. He's like, what does this really mean? Is this really just for us who, you know, we've got, we're on the inn because we're your closest disciples? Or is it for all? Is this standard for all? And Jesus, in typical Jesus fashion, doesn't answer him directly. The Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager? whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. You see, this manager is a fellow servant. He's a servant. The manager is over the master's household, but he too is a servant. He has been entrusted with certain responsibilities as a managing servant. We too we too have been entrusted with certain duties and responsibilities. This servant is responsible for caring for the other servants. I think, I think he's directly speaking directly to Peter there, but he, he doesn't direct it to him explicitly because really this is for all of us. But the question we all should be asking ourselves is this. Who or what am I responsible for? Who or what am I responsible for? Here's a a brief list that is just obvious from the scriptures. And so this should be, you should have no questions about this. If you do, you can, uh, I'd be happy to talk with you. But men, men, you are responsible as the head of your household. You are responsible as the head of your household. You have been entrusted to manage it with an authority that is given to you by God. You are the head of household. Men. 
this is clear from the creation account all the way through the New Testament. Man was not made for woman, but woman for man. That's not a knock at women if you understand what is meant by that. But men, you have a responsibility to your families and to passively expect your wife to lead the home is a failure on your part. You also are responsible over your vocation, what you do with your hands. You are called by the scriptures to work hard as unto the Lord. To work hard, not simply as provision for your family, though it is that, but as a testimony to the nature of God and his character. And so you work hard. You manage yourself well in these responsibilities. You are also responsible for your role within society. As the man goes, so goes society. We see this throughout, throughout history. As the man goes, so goes society. I don't want to speak too much on this, but there is a massive, massive shift happening in the West right now with the feminization of men. It's being celebrated. It's being celebrated. It's evil. It's evil. There are biological realities in the creation order cannot be ignored. Men, you are called to be strong, to think clearly, and to stand like a warrior for whatever the Lord calls you to, primarily against the attacks of Satan and self. You must fight, learn to fight yourself <laughs> as you advance in righteousness. But Understand this, that as the man goes, so goes society. We are responsible for the example we set in the world. Women, if you are a wife, you are called to be the helpmate to your husband, the helpmate to your husband. We see this specifically stated in the creation account, but also in the New Testament. See Titus 2. And Ephesians, you are the helpmate to your husband. You are also a manager of the household. You are also a manager of the household. You are not head of the household, but a manager of it. That obviously includes rearing children and establishing Christ in their hearts as their mother's. And also, you are an example to other women within society at large. In Paul's letter to Titus, he makes it abundantly clear that older women are to teach younger women how to be women. How to live faith-filled lives of obedience to God. How to submit to husbands. How to rear children. And how to stand in the face of evil and say, I belong to the Most High. 
You have that responsibility as a woman. Children, specifically children still in the home, it is your responsibility to be obedient to your parents. It is an act of faith to submit to your parents. It is honoring to God. It's the first command with a promise. You are also to be helpers in the home. As you grow in age, child, you ought to be participating in the roles of managing the house. You ought to be aiding your parents in the duties of the home. And you also are responsible for living as an example and a role model before your other siblings and for among your peers. You see, we all have roles, responsibilities. We are all given things to manage from the Lord. And it is these things that must take precedent because it is these things that are also worship. It is how Christ designed the world. And to rebel against the created order is to rebel against the creator himself. And so our readiness, right, our, our readiness and our light shining is actually made manifest in the management of our God-given responsibilities. But I want you to notice something we're going to see. Our obedience in these things can only happen when we begin in faith. Our obedience in these things can only happen when we begin with faith. Here's what I mean. Verse 45. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of the servant will come on a day that he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know. We'll get to the punishment in a second. You see, the disobedience of this servant stems first in unbelief because he no longer believes the promise of his master. He no longer considers the master to be truthful or even to think that the punishment is severe. He no longer considers his duties as non-negotiables. It's unbelief. So now the servant begins to abuse the ones that he was given to to serve and protect. It, I don't think it takes much, a, a large stretch of the imagination to look out at the world around us and see this being played out. How many deadbeat dads are there in this world? How many men are beating their wives instead of loving them and protecting them? How many Single moms are forced to take and assume the role of head of household because some lazy father didn't know how to get his act together. This is a tragedy. And it all stems in unbelief because we no longer consider the weight of our God-given responsibilities because we no longer consider the weight of God's authority.
and before or if you think this is somehow aimed to be personal or anything of that nature, it's not. I grew up in a home where my dad refused to be a dad. My mother raised me. So I know firsthand the difficulties of a broken home. And because of his actions, he died when I was a child. As one who has experienced this, I say that not to ask for pity, because I don't need any, but I know what it looks like when sin runs rampant in the home. And Christ mercifully calls us higher. Christ mercifully says, this is the way. Trust me. Trust me. And he will do it. He will do it. He will provide. He will be merciful. He will draw near to those who first draw near to him. We must not be those who turn God's gifts, time, moments, inwardly to serve ourselves like this unfaithful servant did. Not only did he abuse the ones who were entrusted to him, but he did it for himself. He did it for himself. He took, he took the moments that were his to give back to the Lord, and he instead spent them on himself. By faith, we understand that Jesus is the Christ. And as such, he is the Son of Man. He will judge us someday, and that day could be today. We must walk in the fear of the Lord. And finally, my last point, much, much will be required. Much will be required. Verse 46 the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. I just want to stop there. It, that sounds incredibly, incredibly violent because it is. That cutting, the original language... Koine Greek, it, it literally means to cut. He will cut him in two. But th I think there's a, there's a hint, if you're familiar with Hebrews 14, when it says that the, the spirit, the sword of the spirit, it cuts and it divides. It separates soul and spirit. And, and in doing so, it reveals. It judges. And so to be cut by the Lord is to be exposed for who you really are. To be exposed for who you really are as a form of judgment. In the prophets, in, in the prophets, there's a common theme where the Lord is judging Israel, and he says, I will lift up your skirts before the nations and expose you to the world. That's what judgment is. It's the revelation of that which is hidden in the fullest sense on that day. It will be the exposure of that which is hidden. And so this servant, 
is cut in two. And then it says that the master will put him with the unfaithful. Will put him with the unfaithful. If Jesus finds you living irresponsible and negligent of the responsibilities he has given you, he will judge your deeds and will consider you unfaithful because you are unfaithful. Here's what I was alluding to earlier. The evidence of your salvation is based in your endurance until the end. There is no such thing as pray a prayer and be saved. No such thing. I would welcome anyone to try to prove me wrong. (laughs) That sounds really haughty, but I mean it because so many people functionally believe this. Also, also, there's a sentiment in Western Christianity that I, I know what it means, and I've said it myself before, but it's misleading. And it's that of once saved, always saved. It gives people hope in something happening at some time and place in their life. But it doesn't warn them of the lack of evidence of Christianity in their hearts today. In Romans 6.22, Paul says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. Okay? So the fruit that you bear, it's leading, it's adding to your sanctification, which is you being set apart as holy. That's what sanctification means. It means to be set apart as holy. And its end, sanctification's end, eternal life. Eternal life. If the process of sanctification fails in your life, it's proof that you don't know Christ. It's proof that you don't know him. Faith leads to sanctification, and sanctification's end is eternal life. This is what Romans 6, 22 says. Also, 2 Corinthians 7, chapter, excuse me, verse 1, chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, he's talking about the promises of the gospel, all these things that are ours in Christ, real things given to us in grace and in mercy from God. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Bringing holiness to completion. This is why Paul says, work out your faith with fear and trembling, your salvation, excuse me, with fear and trembling. It better be able to be proven. It better be able to be proven. When tested, when tested, it must, it must reveal a purity. The dross must be burned off. And there must be precious gold and silver. And as I said earlier, this isn't meant at all to be doom, gloom, or anything alarmist. And yet, Jesus is not mincing his words. These are words from his very mouth. 
to his very disciples. There's no hidden meaning. What he says is what he means. And the question for us is, do we trust him? Do we trust him? Is he true? Is he true? Verse 47. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. It, it's obvious, but it should be stated. Both get a beating. Both get a beating. I think it's a little laughable because I've pondered over it many a time. But it's, there's a part of us that might say, well, if I intentionally stay ignorant, then it won't be so bad for me. Ignorance really is bliss. No. The fact that you even have that thought is proof that you know too much. We will all be held accountable on that day. And the more we know, the more we are responsible for. Paul, too, gets to that sentiment in Philippians. He says, we must all live up to that standard that we know. It's ours now. It was a gift of grace, but we know it now. And we have no excuse. No excuse. And the one who intentionally disobeys will be beat by his master. I don't know what that will look like on the last day, but it doesn't sound good. It doesn't sound good. Everyone to whom much was given of him much will be required and from him to whom they entrusted much they will demand the more I pray that tonight we confess our sins our laziness our slothfulness our unbelief before the Lord to all of us who are in the room and who have been given the treasures of heaven in Christ, much will be required. He is gracious indeed to save, but he holds the standard high because he is the standard. And we owe him our all because he is our all in all. And so in, as we conclude, I want to give a few uh, more points of application. First one is this, we must be disciplined. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, look carefully then how you walk. Pay attention to how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Look carefully then at how you walk. Pay attention. Pay attention. As I said earlier, Christianity, Christianity cannot be passive. You must 
be the judge of yourself. And the standard at which, by which you judge yourself is always the Scriptures. And if you don't know the Scriptures, then you read them until you know them. You do it in community. You do it with fellow saints who walk and have walked in the ways of the Lord. But look carefully to how you walk. Every breath we draw is a gift of grace. This is true. This is true. Every breath we draw. It's, this idea is even rooted in the very creation of the world because he breathed the breath of life into Adam. It's why spirit and breath are used interchangeably in these ancient languages, Hebrew and Greek, because it is the very breath of God that is in our lungs right now, and it is a gift of grace. And it's a reminder that we are one moment closer to the Lord's return. We must persevere in faithful obedience. We must persevere. Paul writes to Timothy, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. It's simple and yet profound. Do we want to receive the crown of life? Then we must run the race according to the rules set by God. Do we really believe that we're citizens of another country? Then we ought to live like those citizens. Do we want to see fruit from the harvest of our lives? Then we must live as those who plant seeds, till the soil, and work faithfully that there might be fruit. Okay, several things before we close. I'm running a little out of time. First is this, warning to workaholics. Hyperproductivity and overworking does not equal faithfulness. We see this in the story regarding Martha and Mary, uh, two chapters prior in Luke 10. Jesus visits their house. Martha immediately gets to work preparing to serve Jesus, whereas Mary sits at his feet. Martha becomes indignant. She's upset that her sister's not helping. And she complains to Jesus. And he says this. Mary chose the better portion. He says this, actually. Let me just read it. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. You can just feel her indignance through the text. Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. She chose to honor the Lord in her heart and to sit prostrate before him. She chose the better portion. And so for those of you in the room who, who use work as an escape 
This is particularly prevalent among men. That's not an excuse. It's not an excuse to disobedience. It's not an excuse to miss out on the fellowship of the saints. Your hyper-productivity, your overworking, whatever you want to call it, it's no sign of true faithfulness. And for you, there's a tendency to always believe that these miscellaneous needs are always priorities. You're constantly working on something, but it's often on the wrong things. And so it's essential that you identify your God-given priorities and establish them over and above the things you feel are priorities. My next warning is to lazy people. You know them, I know them. Sometimes I am it. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. Again, Christianity is not passive. You cannot be a lazy Christian in any sense of the word. And again, later in the same same chapter, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. To earn their own living. Don't be lazy, but work heartily unto the Lord. And here's, I would be remiss to not include this. I couldn't preach specifically from this, but I think this is the key in understanding God's design in all this in terms of a strong work ethic, but also understanding how to rest. And it's Sabbath. And Sabbath is for all. The Sabbath was given by God to to his people as a reminder, but also as a gift. The Sabbath makes explicit the nature of work and rest. In the Ten Commandments, we see this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Why? Why? For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Work is not evil because the Lord worked. He himself sets the standard of what it looks like to work and to rest. And he leaves it as a reminder for us. Jesus himself said, man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath for man. And so, to the workaholic, do not neglect the Sabbath. Your overworking will kill you spiritually. And to the lazy, the slothful, do not abuse the Sabbath. Because just as God worked, we are called to do the same. We have all been given management over something. And so the charge for us all is this. 
May we dress ourselves in the righteousness of Christ and may we burn steadily until the very end, working and resting faithfully in all that he gives us for the one who endures to the end will be saved. Let's pray. Lord, how we need you. How authoritative is your word and how so easy it is for us to dismiss it, to trivialize it, and to think, surely it doesn't mean that. But I pray that we would learn how to stay at the ready and how to keep our lamps burning. You're worthy. And you've called us to wait patiently and expectantly for your return. And I pray that for those of us who belong to you in faith, that we would give our all to you. That you would have rule and reign over us and over the things we do. That we would work diligently where work is required and that we would rest well knowing that rest itself is an act of faith because you've given it to us. Father, forgive us of our abuse of your order and our neglect of it. Please awake us spiritually to these realities that we would find joy in working diligently in your kingdom and being strengthened by the strength you provide. It's all for you. I pray that we would trust you in all this and that we would put our hands to the plow in faithfulness. Cause us to endure that we might be saved. It's in your name I pray and ask all this. Amen.